Hey, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 17 and press on through the end of the book of Joel. So Joel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Now, if you're uh, new with us this morning, we are wrapping up an entire sermon series. And even if uh, you've been with us the whole way, I'd like to take time just to set the stage to help remind us what has come before this text, because there's a lot of different threads that that Joel is going to weave together as he brings us to the finale. And so if you were to look back into Joel chapter one, you would see how the entire first part of this book is all about the message and the call for the people of Judah, this southern kingdom of Israel, to repent, to return to the Lord. And they needed to do that because they had grown hollow in their worship. They made religion all about checking the boxes and therefore had grown very cold towards the Lord their God. Um, They took his blessings for granted. They just were living their lives however they wanted, and they were just kind of going through the drive-through of church life, so to speak. They weren't taking time to really think about who the Lord their God was. And so God sent many signs to wake them up to the peril that they were in. He sent locust swarms and armies and famine, and these things were all devastating to the life of Israel, even in the life of their religious worship. And it was designed not to destroy them, but to wake them up so that they could hear the promise that yet even now, Joel 2, 13 through 14, yet even now they could turn and return to the Lord and be restored. And then at the end of chapter two, we saw how God promised to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And that's a key text, not just in Joel, but in the entire Bible, because Peter picks it up in Acts 2 when he's preaching at Pentecost. And he reminds us that it was there that that was fulfilled. The spirit is continued to be poured out upon God's people today and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so that marked a turning point in Joel, a turning point from having repented, now hope. Hope in the Lord your God to whom you've been restored. And this hope we've seen in chapter three is a hope um, that is not just you know, kind of abstract and ethereal and cloudy. It is a real hope that will um, see all the wrongs of the world made right. There's a hope that there is coming a day of the Lord when he will return and he will bring the nations who have rebelled against him, who have just trashed this world and trashed their fellow humans, will bring them into account for what they have done. And so now as we wrap up our time in Joel, we're going to see Joel say a little bit more about the culmination of the day of the Lord. We're going to see what makes our hope in Christ so wonderful, so good, and so worth clinging to in life and even in the darkest and driest of times. David Allen Hubbard, he makes the focus of the day of the Lord clear. He says this, he says, the ultimate characteristic of Yahweh's day is not his warfare with his enemies in the valley of decision, nor his refreshment of his people in the valley of the Achaishas, dominant though these elements be. It is instead his renewed, restored, and permanent presence with them, his people. So God's presence with his people, we say this a lot at our church, that is the entire point of the biblical story. The entire point is that God made humanity to dwell with him, to be loved by him and to love him in return. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we we notice that just by the way we live our lives, we often don't really confess that we want to be with God very much, do we? We don't prioritize time with him throughout the week. And I, I don't just mean that you, know, you don't spend enough time reading your Bible or in prayer. But we're just not mindful of the fact that he is the living God who's at work in our lives. We don't take time to count up the ways he's been good to us this past week or to give him thanks for the ways he sustained us through hardship. 
And so we don't take his word very seriously and we'll try to wiggle around his warnings about our sin and be like, ah, yeah, that doesn't really count there. And we don't then believe his promises. We have trouble trusting that he's really good. And if we're honest, we often struggle to want to be right here in worship. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll show up late or not come at all. We'll put other things first or we come and we're distracted or disinterested or skeptical or cynical or a million of other things. And here's the heart of the matter, though, because this isn't just a matter of like, oh, you're late, you know, feel bad about yourselves. No, the, there's a heart beneath this that we have to ask. And that, that comes with this question. Do you believe that the Lord our God wants to be with you? Do you believe that God wants to be with you? Because you've got to answer that question before you answer the question of, do you want to be with God? Because think about how so often the way we think of ourselves and the way we think of others influences our relationships. Like if I hate myself, then I'm not gonna be very inclined to think that anyone would really wanna be with me. Because I think I, I'm just lousy and I don't have much to offer. And so that makes me very sheepish and anxious about my relationships. And so if all we can think about is, is ourselves and what's bothering us, then maybe we think that you know, God doesn't wanna be with us either. And so sometimes, too, we might feel like if we have a bad week, that God makes the distinction we make with our loved ones and our friends where we're like, you know, I love you, but I really don't like you right now. You know, you're, you're my brother, or you're my sister, or you're my wife, or you're my best friend, or whatever, but like you doing this really agitates me, and I don't like you. And so sometimes we can approach worship, we can approach the Lord our God like that, where we're like, yeah, I think I'm walking on eggshells going into worship this morning. I don't know if God really wants to see me. And so if, if we don't believe that today, right now, the Lord our God wants to be with us, his people, that's gonna impact the way we live. And so do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants to be with you? Because then we have to ask ourselves, what is shaping the way you think about and even more importantly, experience God's presence? Again, is it, is it the things that you see that are wrong with yourself? Because that's gonna affect the way you think God thinks about you. Is it that you see someone else and you're like, man, their Christian life's rocking. Like, they've got it going on. They seem to always be at Bible studies. They seem to just be filled with the presence of the Lord their God and like, I don't know, I feel like a robot um, or I'm just going through the motions or I feel exhausted and I don't really seem to experience God's presence like I think they do. Whereas even if you ask them, they'd probably say, yeah, what you're seeing is not what I'm feeling. And so sometimes we let other people's experiences or the things we read online or, or read in books, we let that shape us more than God's word. And so God knows that we carry so much inside of ourselves. He knows there's so much just battering us and buffering us in this world. And he knows then that it's hard for us sometimes to believe that he wants to be with us, that he really does love us. And so he gives us passages like the one we're about to come to this morning to shape our hope, to pull us out of ourselves, to pull us back out of our circumstances and to make it crystal clear that he is the Lord our God and he does love us and he does want to be with you this morning. And not just this morning, but that when he returns forever. And so the key truth we're going to see from this text this morning is that on the day of the Lord, God will make all things new and all things right so that he can dwell with us, his people, forever. And so if you would, turn your attention to Joel 3, 17 through 18. We're going to start out by seeing how God's presence will make all things new. So hear the words of the Lord our God for us, his people. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, 
The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Now, as we left off last week, Joel concluded by reminding us that God is a refuge to his people. Yes, he is coming as divine warrior, and he will judge the rebellious nations for the way they have destroyed his people and commodified image bearers and have, have rebelled and spat in the face of their creator, God. But at the same time, when he returns, he's also coming as returning king and loving father for his people. And so verse 17, it starts to unpack that for us, and it declares quite simply, when God comes again, we will know he is the Lord. We will know it for sure. And this calls back to Joel 2:27, when God restored the harvest to his people, when he restored blessings. He said, now you know I am the Lord your God. These blessings didn't just come automatically. They weren't due to your technology or your skill or whatever. It is because I am the Lord and I am with you and you remember it. And so we see this pattern continues all throughout scripture. When God acts for the redemption and the salvation of his people, they know he is the Lord. And we need that type of clear just simple assurance because there's so much in the world that makes us feel like, man, God is not reigning. We, we talk a lot about a text, Hebrews 2, verse 8 in, in our church because in that text it says, look, Christ reigns at the right hand of the Father, but when you look around in the world and you look in your own heart, it doesn't look like it a lot of times, but he does reign. And we can just think about all the things that are weighing on your heart. You look around the world and you see the wicked prospering, the nations continue to rage, they seem to not care a whit that God's gonna call them into account. Wolves devour the sheep and the weeds seem to choke out the grain and our bodies, they break, our hearts, they hurt and our minds, they swirl. And as you go through the week, you have moments where everything just seems meaningless and you call into question everything you've done. Moments when everything seems wrong and you wonder if you could be loved. And moments when we hate ourselves and you don't wanna be known. And so often then nothing, including ourselves, seems to be under the reign of God. And yet it is. And there is this day that is coming when it will be clear that you weren't crazy to believe in a God who you can't see. You weren't crazy to believe that this just and holy God could love you despite all you've done. You weren't crazy to believe that Jesus, who died 2,000 years ago, that his blood could save you too. You weren't crazy. You will know face to face the Lord our God reigns. He loves you and he's come to be with you forever. And so Joel starts out with that heading. It's gonna happen, and you're gonna see. And then he turns, and he gets into the good stuff. He gets into the details. He says, Jerusalem, whose name means city of peace, this place where God is coming to dwell with his people, it will be holy. It'll be holy. It will not be transgressed by sin or death or brokenness anymore. This place will be transformed by God's presence, which means although we and our holiness in Christ, it is imperfect, it's incomplete, it will be brought to completion then. And we will dwell with God, perfectly reflecting his character, able to worship him without being distracted, without being haunted by our sorrows. And notice that it says, no strangers shall ever again pass through it. This means that it's not up for grabs. There's not gonna be a serpent who can slither in and infiltrate this garden city. There's not gonna be any more temptation in our hearts that would pull us away from the goodness of God. It will be holy and pure. Revelation 21, 27 picks up this theme. It says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All of God's people will dwell there, and they will dwell secure in his presence. And yet it's not then just, the goodness doesn't end with the fact that the new Jerusalem is going to be safe and secure, and that evil will never get the chance to strike back. What's kept outside is even overshadowed by what's inside this place. Earlier in Joel, Judah's sin had led them far astray from God and thus away from the covenant blessings he had promised them. If you look back in Joel chapter one, you just see as it goes, blow by blow by blow, things are falling apart and drying up. The sweet wine dries up. The beasts of the field, they're groaning and they're perplexed because there's no food for them. The brooks are dried up and so sin had ruined everything. But now that they had repented, And now that their hope was being fulfilled, now that God was on the move and he was restoring everything by being with his people, the abundance of his blessings is poured out again. Where there was once famine, there is now the richest of harvest. There is now so much sweet wine that the very mountains drip with it. And the beasts of the field are now so well fed that the hills flow with milk and the stream beds come roaring back to life, bringing water to all the land. And so on top of that then, there's this image of this fountain that comes from the house of the Lord and waters the valley of Shittim, which means the valley of the Achaishas. These were the trees in the book of Exodus that were used, their wood was used to make the tabernacle. And so this might be an image that, that recalls the fact that this type of wood was used to make God's first dwelling place with his people. And if you know anything about the tabernacle, you know it was a mobile dwelling place. God dwelled in a tent with his people. They could pack it up and carry it in their wilderness wanderings. And now it's this idea of the very valley where this lumber came from will be filled with water from God. It will be filled with the abundance of life. It's permanent. It doesn't need to move anymore because they're not evading sin. They're not on the run from God's enemies. The enemies have been dealt with and they can dwell with God uninterrupted. And the fountain image is a rich image. It's in Psalm 46, Zechariah 14, Revelation 22. This picture is often used to describe the effect God's presence will have on his world. Because our God is not a God of death. He is not a God of destruction. This isn't Ragnarok where the gods come back and destroy everything. This is the restoration of all things. God's presence, because he is the God and Lord of life, brings life and life in the full. And so this fountain is meant to show how when God returns, he will make everything new. Every atom in creation will be restored. And we will get to bask in the glory of his presence and in the goodness of the world he made as it was intended to be. I love how O. Palmer Robertson describes this. He says, like the clearing, like the clear shining after rain, so the world returns to its pristine beauty after the judgments of the Lord have been completed. Paradise returns. But now the fruitful garden is merged with the perfections of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that has been prepared by the Lord as the eternal dwelling place of his people. I just love that idea of, you know, we're we're enduring the rainstorm now, but one day it will clear, it will cease. And then the world is restored to its pristine beauty by God. And these images, they are very powerful and they're gripping. They are meant for us to pause and soak them in. This is poetry. You're not supposed to just read it once or read it quickly. You're supposed to bask in it. And so it's really worth us asking ourselves this morning, this Lord's Day Sabbath, how do you imagine Christ's return to make all things new? How do you picture it in your mind? Because however you imagine it, that's gonna help you answer the second question, which is how does your hope 
in the coming day of the Lord shape the way we live today? How do we picture this? And you can think about how these images, this reminder of how good God's return will be can help us in so many ways in our discipleship. Like think about how these images can help you resist temptation. So often as Christians, we can feel like we're the people missing out on the party that everyone else is invited to. You know, like you're walking along in life, you're just kind of trudging along and it's cold and you're trying to just stay warm and get through life. And then you turn and you look and you see a house that's lit up and there's a fire inside, lots of food and everyone's partying. You're like, that's the world. They're living it up and I'm, you know, anxious about everything and they look happy and I feel sad. They look put together and my life feels like it's falling apart. And so sin seems really attractive in our imaginations. And temptation comes along and it opens the door to the party. It's like, hey, come on in. There's room for you too. Come join the good life. And we find ourselves being like, well, maybe it's not so bad. Did God really say I can't do this or that or the other thing? But notice what's dangerous here. It's not just the fact that we think of sin as a party. The problem here is that in our imaginations and at the level of our desires, so often we think of the Christian life as one of constantly missing out on what's good in life. We cast discipleship in a negative light. Being a Christian is all about what I say no to. It's about being austere and really serious. There's no room for the joy of the Spirit sometimes in the way we think about our Christianity. But to that, we've got to quote Paul from Philippians 3 and just say, rubbish. That's not true. Do we really believe that Jesus is so paltry and small that he can't compare with the artificial sweetness of sin? And I think for most of us, as that saying, we'd be like, no, I don't, I don't really believe that. We really do believe that Jesus is enough for us and that he is good and that life following him in discipleship is good life. But often we don't feel like we believe it. And that difference is subtle but important. We believe the idea that Jesus is enough, but we want to and we need to taste and see that he is enough really and truly today, right now, real time, real life. And I think a key step in growing in this way is soaking our imagination and imagery in the Bible like we find here in Joel 3.18. Because again, as we've noticed, temptation, it hijacks your imagination. It makes sin seem way better than it is. We think about how good it could feel to cuss out that jerk who cut you off in traffic and tell him off if you, know, you pull up next to him at the next red light. Or you imagine, you know, oh man, that person really shamed me. And then you spend the rest of the day, you know, from the time like you go home from work and then you're taking a shower and you just think of all the comebacks you could have said to just look more clever. You know, we think about how good sin would feel in those ways. We think about how much greener the grass might be outside of our marriages or how much satisfaction might be ours if we just give in and look at pornography one more time. All these ways, that's just a few examples, but all these ways, temptation hijacks our imagination and makes us think sin is good. And all of this happens at the level of our desires, not our ideas, because we know and will say sin is bad, but we feel sin is good. And so is it any wonder then that fighting temptation can be really hard for us? Because if we boil the truth of the gospel down to a bunch of ideas, then we're powerless sometimes against our desires and we need something that grips our imaginations. And so next time you find yourself fighting temptation, remember that the good stuff is promised here. The good stuff is coming with Christ's return. You don't need to sin to be fulfilled. You are fulfilled in Christ. And yes, sometimes it feels like you're walking through a dry valley, but there's coming a day when that valley will come bursting forth with the waters that flow from the fountain of life from before God's throne. You know, another way to think about that is as we sang today, we are homeward bound. 
We are on our way home to be with God. And, and as we think about where we're journeying, that can, that, or traveling, that can affect the way we do the traveling. Like imagine Thanksgiving's coming up and imagine you're on your way to grandma's house for Thanksgiving dinner and you get the rumblies along the way. You're like, oh man, I'm really hungry. You are not going to pull into Taco Bell or, or McDonald's in the drive-thru and satisfy your cravings. That would be ridiculous because grandma makes the best turkey in the world and there's gonna be five types of pie for dessert. The good stuff is coming and if you pull aside and take a detour, you're gonna ruin your appetite and you're gonna miss out on what's really good. I think that type of imagination reminding us like, yes, you know, it's $2 for a great burrito. It'd be good, but you know, Thanksgiving's coming. Um, you know, you think about that type of imagery. Yes, temptation, it'd be a cheap thrill. It'd make me feel good right now. It'd make me feel really good. But I'm going home, and I'm going to be with my father, and he's gonna satisfy me. And in fact, he's already poured out his spirit on me so that I'm not just living in deficit now, but I have everything I need in Christ. So we have to fill our minds and our imaginations with images like this so that when temptation comes, we can fight back. And fight back not just with shallow ideas and thin ideas, but with the fullness that those ideas talk about the fullness of God's goodness. And so it would be good, again, for us to soak in that this Lord's day. But let's also turn and see the other part of this passage. Turn back to the text, Joel 3, 19 through 21, where we'll see that God's presence will make all things right. So here again, the words of the Lord our God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall come, shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So just structurally, these last three verses, they make a sandwich or a chiasm. The first and last verses, they assure us that God will come and he will bring his enemies to justice. And the middle verse promises us that as God's people, we will dwell secure and that evil will not have the final say. Now, it's easy for us to overlook this, but for most of ancient history, Egypt and Edom, these nations that are named, they were the ones that you would have expected to be inhabited forever. Egypt had the Nile Delta. They had the best natural resource for having an agricultural society you could possibly ask for. They had fertile soil every year. They had technological advances. Their religion seemed sophisticated. They had good mathematics, astronomy. They were engineering masters because their marvels still stand for us to, to just behold today. You wouldn't think that they were gonna pass away. And Edom, although they were nowhere near the cultural epicenter that Egypt was, they inhabited a very strategic piece of land where they were basically impenetrable from, um, from the outside because they dwelled in this very rocky, mountainous region. You couldn't take them down. And so they looked like they were undefeatable. And Israel, by contrast, was basically the highway that everyone else drove along in the ancient world to trade with each other and to fight with each other. And so Israel was constantly getting battered and invaded and strangers were parading through it and parading off with Israel's stuff and parading off with Israel's people. And here's his promise. No, no, no. God will shame the strong and redeem and lift up the weak. His wisdom is not the wisdom of the world. It is the upside down nature of the kingdom. And so although these nations raged, they would be brought into account. But I think if we're honest, as we come to this part of the text, we, we come off of verses 17 and 18, we're like, that's awesome. Like the idea that God is gonna come back and make all things new, like I can get behind that, I long for that. 
And then you come and you see that God's going to make all things right and he's going to bring judgment. And you're like, ooh, that feels like a negative note. You know, we don't quite know what to do with that. We feel like we could go and talk all kinds of just good stuff about God coming to make all things new. But a lot of times we're very uncomfortable with the idea of God's judgment. And I think some of that is because of the question we were asked last week that Cameron challenged us with. When we think about God coming back, do we think more about ourselves? Are we afraid more for ourselves or are we afraid more for those who don't know Christ? And so sometimes the problem just has to do with the way we're thinking about it. Maybe we, we don't think enough of Christ. We don't think enough of the fact that he really did die for us and that there is now no condemnation for us. Sometimes, though, we often wonder, is God really, does he really need to come and judge people? Like, is sin really that bad? It's so easy for us to just kind of get swept along in life that we don't t- stop and really think about how evil sin really is. But you feel it when you confess your sin to somebody. Like, that's why that's so uncomfortable. Like, when you have to say, I wronged you in this way, and you see the pain in their eyes and the broken trust from what you've done, you, you realize sin is evil. This breaks and ravages God's world, and it breaks and ravages people made in God's image. And so we have to, we have to stop and think, you know, okay, what, what assumptions are we bringing to the table? Because evil is a huge problem in the world, and we are powerless to stop it. I was just reading last night how the House um, a week ago passed a resolution recognizing and condemning the Armenian genocide. We're almost a century behind on recognizing that. And our recognition, although it is good, you know, we're saying this happened and it was awful and these people's lives were taken from them. We can't undo what was done. You know, you look at that and you say, well, on the one hand, that's good, but there's part of us that feels like, but no. Is that all we can do is just recognize the evil that's done? Can't somebody fix the problem? And so that's the idea of God's justice. He's coming to make things right. He's coming to right all the wrongs, to put everything back right the way it ought to be. But part of our problem then might be, but I've participated in the evils of the world and I've added to the heap of just sin and shame that has made a mess of this world and made a mess of my life and the lives of those around me. So I don't deserve to be in this new Jerusalem. And no, you don't. And no, I don't. And no, none of us do. If you're in Christ though, it's not as though when you turn to God in faith that God just kind of, you know, Jedi mind tricks away your sin, and you know, everyone forgets about it, but that you know, if you were able to go back in time, you'd realize it was a massive cover-up. Jesus is not the cover-up for your sin. He is the sacrifice and the substitution on your behalf so that God can be just in dealing with your sin as it ought be done, and so that he can show you mercy and bring you home. If you're in Christ, your sin has not just been poofed away. It's been brought to justice in Christ. His death wasn't just in a big firework display in history to get our attention so we'd notice God. Christ's death was because our sin is that evil, that bad, and the wages of it is death. And so those who will dwell in this city, it's not like God's playing favor. It's like, ah, I'll, I'll forgive your sins because you paid attention to me, but everybody else, since they didn't notice, you know, they'll have to pay for their sins. No, no, no. All sin will be brought to justice either in Christ as he took it on upon himself on the cross or will be borne by those who persist in their rebellion and who refuse to come and to know the Lord their God, not just as judge, but as father. But it is heavy. It's heavy to think about people we know who could know God as judge and not know him as father. 
And so if you notice, look very closely at verse 21. God says, I will avenge their blood, the blood of his people. And this is the blood. If you go to Revelation 6.10, you read of the martyrs before the throne of God. And they're crying out, Lord, how long? How long are you going to let things like genocide just ravage the world? How long are you going to let your own people be beat up and killed and slaughtered? When are you going to make things right? He says, not yet, because your number is not yet full. He says, again, back in Joel 3, I will avenge their blood. It's coming but it's blood I have not yet avenged. It's the idea of there's a pause. He will come, but he is paused because there's a way for justice to be done through reconciliation. Reconciliation in Christ. Reconciliation, again, it doesn't mean that we just ignore sin and we say it doesn't matter. Reconciliation means that we say, you the oppressor and I the oppressor, we are both made in God's image. We were meant to dwell together. And what you have done is evil and wrong. But Jesus is good, and Jesus has taken on that wrong, and he has paid the penalty so that you could not be destroyed by your own hand, so that the evil you've done would not have to have the final say over your life or over my life, whom you have wronged. And so there's this great just truce, so to speak, for the moment. There's a still fire in history where God has sent his people out, and he said, look, the judgment will come, but until then, go and be my ambassador's not for condemnation, but for reconciliation. Vengeance belongs to the Lord and to the Lord God alone. We, we seek justice, but we seek it ultimately in the hopes of achieving reconciliation. It is not for us to you know, be Bruce Wayne and put on a black cape and bring about vengeance. It is for us to go and to endure whatever we need to do to try to proclaim the message of reconciliation that even those who have wronged us might be able to come home. And that's hard. That's really hard. But that's why the Spirit has been poured out upon us to help us in that. It's really interesting, too. If you go back to verse 19, where it talks about how the nations have shed innocent blood in their land, that, verse, or that verb shed is the same verb used to describe how God has poured out his Spirit. And so you see there are these two floods, so to speak, in the world. There's a flood of just bloodshed that we in our sin are unleashing on the world, making a mess of it. But there's the flood of God's Spirit that brings with it the waters of life, that brings with it the capacity that there could be something better, not just when Christ returns, but that we could get a foretaste of that even now in anticipation of his return. And so hear how Leslie Allen describes all of this in summary. He says, Yahweh breaks in with a final word of assurance to the sorrowing. They receive the glad promise that he will not leave the debt unpaid, but will exact punishment for the last dark drop. The fact of Yahweh's presence in Zion, celebrated in verse 17, is the guarantee of vindication. Yahweh had already heard the cry of lament from their hearts concerning the locusts. Now the book closes with the promise that he would champion anew his chosen people and see that justice was done on this long-standing issue. God is on the throne. The reminder of his sovereignty is balm for the wounds of injustice and the basis of his people's hope for the future. And so I ask you this morning, how does God's promise to make all things right change the way you live? In particular, what does this promise mean for our suffering and for our evangelism? Because again, vengeance belongs to God. There is not going to be a single sin that goes unaccounted for. So often, like you think of just if you have kids or kids or if you don't have kids yet, you think back to your own childhood. So often, you know, the reason we get in trouble is because we struck our sibling. We're like, well, they started it. You know, and we always strike back because we think nothing's gonna be done. And we don't grow out of that as adults. We just do it in bigger and worse ways. 
Um, and so we see we're called to the ministry of reconciliation instead. We're not called to vengeance. We're called to lean in, to call people out of their own darkness, to call them out of their injustice, and to call them to know the Lord their God. And we have real hope in that, knowing that we're not just you know, fools. We're not just you know, saying peace, peace, for there is no peace. We're saying no peace, peace in Christ and in Christ alone. And so as we wrap up, we see that Joel 3, 17 through 21, it teaches us that on the day of the Lord, God will make all things new, which means we have a firm and wonderful hope in Christ. Sin will not have the final say. The things we can't stand about ourselves, they will be brought, in, brought away, and we will be made fully new and restored in Christ. We see, too, that God will make all things right, and that we have a firm and true reason to repent from our sins because Christ has paid for them, and we have a good reason to go out and to reach out to the lost that they would not be destroyed by their own hand, but that their sins could be dealt with in Christ as well and they could know God as Father. We see ultimately then that God will dwell with us, his people, forever. And as we close on that and think about that, I thought it would be really great to finish out by reading from Revelation. We're gonna get ready in the coming weeks in Advent to have a sermon series from Revelation. And I think you'll see as we study this book, you're gonna see a lot of themes from Joel picked up in Revelation, because Revelation is doing that with everything in the Old Testament. But again, this is, this is a text that is meant to grip our imagination, to help us think through just how good it's going to be when Jesus comes back. To Think about how that hope, knowing that we're headed home to our Father's house, can give us what we need to live well today, to endure suffering, to reach out and to forgive those who have wronged us, to fight temptation, to believe that God wants to be with us. So hear these words and let it just soak in your imagination, and then we'll close in prayer. This is Revelation 21, 5 through 8, and then 22, 1 through 7. Hear the words of our God. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, <clears throat> we come before you and we give you thanks just that you have been good to us through the, our time in Joel. 
Lord, you call us to repent of our sin. Lord, you call us to repent of our sin, not so we can just feel bad about ourselves, but Lord, so we can know healing. We can know reconciliation with you and we can live in hope, Lord, not in shame, not in guilt, not in self-loathing, not in fear, but we can live uh, warmed in our affections towards you by your spirit and by the promises of your word. Lord, I pray that the imagery from this passage would be meaningful to us, Lord. We're going into the time of the year where we, we long for your return. We think about your first coming and look forward eagerly to your second coming. But Lord, it's also a time that can be busy. It's a time that can stir up grief. It's a time that can stir up sorrows and troubles for us. And so, God, I pray that in the midst of all of that, we would remember that we are bound for the promised land. We are bound for your house where you will be with us forever, where you will make everything new, including us from the inside out. You will make all things right. The things we wish we had never done, Lord, will be made right. The things done to us that we feel we can't escape from, Lord, they will be made right. Lord, we pray that the goodness of these promises would seep into our bones that it would shape us as your people, that you would grow us as your church, that we would be people of this story, of the goodness that is coming, Lord, that we would be generous with it, that we would be willing to go out and to be shaped by it and to love those in our communities, Lord, starting with our families, our nearest neighbors, our marriages, our siblings, our friends. God, that you would do a mighty work pouring out the waters of life by your spirit and bringing many who were in rebellion against you, Lord, bringing them home, that they would know you not as judge, but as Father. And so, O oh, Father, we give you thanks for this day, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.